see, Christ, eternal state. Is it for me? It's never for me. Is, is she ordering pizza? Oh, good. That's, that's absolutely appropriate. Especially on a day like today. Okay, before time, the first nothing or void zero nothing or eternity after time. See, now you've got to ask the question, will there be a situation where time stops? If time stops, what happens to entropy? It has to also stop. So, so what happens, we have to get into a discussion on does God intend to end time. But before we do that, what requires entropy? What requires a low entropy state? What requires that the rubber band go from a high entropy, a chaotic state of no, no uh, usefulness to a state where it is wound very tight in a tremendous order that it can be used for work? What, what's requiring Somebody's got to wind the rubber band. Okay, the universe is in a low entropy state when it was first created. What's the obvious question? How did it get ordered? Can it get ordered by chaos? Can it be ordered randomly? Well, that's why the, the discussion of the second law of thermodynamics is so important to you. A low entropy state requires effort and power. Where did this power come from that placed the universe into its original low entropy state? And Scripture begins with this question. The first thing that it answers when you open your Bible and look at any other book, the first book, the only book that answers how did we get into a low entropy state and how did we get time? Where did all this come from? Where did the power come from to put the universe into the system that's there? What causes it now to, to, decay, to decay into randomness, why is it groaning? The only book that says that, and the only book that starts out with this question perfectly, is the Bible. Starts out by saying, God did what? Put the universe into a high-ordered, low-entropy state. That's how it starts. Hmm? No. First, he had to make it exist, and that's where we're going. Very good. See, how did God get the universe into existence? By what means? He tells you. What did he do? He spoke. What's that? Define spoke. What would, if I say somebody spoke, what would I be saying about them? They used a what? A word. And what's the obvious question now? What word is it? What's the other obvious question? How many words did he use? Did he speak a sentence? I want to know. Don't you want to know what words he used? Uh, what's the other thing you want to know? What language did he use? What does the Bible say, by the way? Zephaniah. What language did he use? Hebrew. It says so. Now you're into the mystery of the Hebrew alphabet. God spoke the universe into existence, and then he puts it into a high-ordered, low-entropy state, and then he has time, because once he starts in low... He has to make time and entropy simultaneously, doesn't he? Because we can't even measure time, we can't even observe time, unless there is some kind of change, so it's into a low-entropy state. 
And so time is there, space is there, matter is there, all spoken into existence simultaneously. And God used language. He used a language. And that raises many profound questions, many profound implications. Because what do we call this nowadays? What do the physicists call what he said? They call it the language of God. Have you read Francis Collins' book? Specifically called. Who's Francis Collins? He is a deist, a Christian, who believes that he has found the language of God. He's studying what? He's the premier, preeminent expert on what? The human genome. He's trying to map, map the human genome. And inside that, his book is The Language of God. Just in case you think there are no scientists that are at least theological in some fashion, he's an example of that, though he has some other issues that I'll get to eventually. God used language. And these are questions and these are subjects that you should do, be doing what with? When you sit down across the table from your co-workers and your family and your friends, you should say what? How did we get into a low entropy state? When did time begin? Why did God use language? What word did he say? Those are questions you're asking your friends. We've well, got to be a little careful with that because you've got to make sure that there are people that you wish to remain friends with. Keep in mind that I have been successfully doing what here? Driving away visitors every Sunday, no matter what. It's what I do. Every Sunday. I've done it for many years. So, And I don't intend to change. I think about changing. I get frustrated with my system sometimes, as my wife will attest. But it's way too late for me to change in this regard. I'm changing in other ways. I am, as I said, headed toward high entropy. I'm almost a dirt sandwich. Her father was on the phone to her the other day. He listens to these. He made me laugh. He said to her, I don't want to buy green bananas because he's not sure that he'll be around when they ripe. He said he's in God's waiting room. Is that for me? Oh, that's the that's the main phone. Wow. Do you think it's somebody you could answer it? Think it has anything to do with daylight saving? I'm impressed, by the way, daylight saving time, sunny day. Look at you, and we're not even have steak for another couple of weeks. But I'm really impressed with you. Anyway. Let me introduce a couple of more things to this. I know it's difficult. I realize that I'm, make, I'm saying things to you that make very little sense to most of you, and but some of you will get it, and eventually all of you will get it, because it's just that important. But for today, uh, let's just introduce a couple of things with respect to um, quantum mechanics, and then let's go back to John 13. Let me repeat, God spoke energy, space, matter, and time into existence. He used words to do it, or at least one word, perhaps more than one. We would speculate that it is more than one. And he used words to do it. So he has a language. And now many have searched through the phenomenon that is language, because language is really important. That's why I battle churches that to, that tear language apart. Language is extremely valuable to the Bible and extremely valuable to us. 
It is a phenomenon. It has a mathematical purpose and principle to it, and it has other principles to it that must be there, or it's not what? It's not language. And so I fight for language because I know the implications of allowing it to decay into something that isn't language. And many have noted that the characteristics of language exist at the cell replication process. In other words, the lower you get into the cell structure, the more complex it is because there's an extraordinary language that goes on inside a cell. So that means we're going to study the meaning of God speaking the created order into existence. And to study that, that requires that we understand cells, living cells, life, if you will. We should expect that he would put his language that he started the universe with into the molecular cell level. And he did. It's called God's language of life. And he says so. I am the life. So you can, as a scientist, and I wish you would be one at least enough to know how a cell is made. And if you know how a cell is made, what have you learned? You've learned language. Whose language? God's language. What language? What did he do with his language? Created with it. Made time. And there's Francis Collins. So soon we'll all be back in biology class here. More tables. I'll hand them out. Pencils. And you'll be doing what? That's right. Drawing cells. Studying proteins, amino acids, DNA, RNA, and all the reproductive machinery of a cell. Notice how I say that. Reproductive machinery. You see, a cell is able to reproduce itself. That's extraordinary. Cells make other cells. That's really cool. And they have a way of doing it. They're likened to a factory, most of them, aptly likened to a factory. They reproduce other cells. Cells make cells. Now, in my case, how are they doing? Not so good. We're, we, have, we have this problem now, and my cells don't make very many good cells anymore. We're slowly, uh, my factory needs new supervision. But it is, it's exactly that. And I know some of you are in medical studies and stuff, and this will be old hat for you, but have, have a sympathy for the rest. But there's extraordinary communication going on inside of cells. They have a language, and I will submit to you that they have the same exact language that God has. Duh. It's his language. He put it inside a cell. What did you, what do you see? I could open up Genesis really fast. Uh, just, uh, just, then God said, then God said, here's verse three, chapter one. Then God said, then God said, verse six. Then God said, verse nine. Then God said, verse 11. Then God said, verse 14. Then God said, verse 20. Then God, um, uh, let me make sure I got all of them. Then God said, verse 24. Then God said, verse 26. Then God said, verse 29. What's he doing? He's saying. What's he saying? Words. Language. And he put that language inside the very smallest reproductive device of life. So we should expect that, by the way. And those cells communicate. 
See, language requires prior existence of intelligence. That won't mean anything to you now, but it will uh, soon. The development of language requires that the sender of information have intention and the receiver have comprehension. And well, as I said, that'll be part of our discussion in the weeks to come. This, This will eventually lead to the evolutionary atheists talking about common descent versus the Christian or the theologian talking about the one language of God. Because all life, all physical life, is based on the same molecular mechanisms and the same genetic code. That's why we have common descent versus the language of God. That's the debate. Evolutionary atheism, common descent. Bible, language of God. That's the debate that we are in today. The evolutionary cease to exist after death. Atheists say that the commonality, the fact that all cells, all life, all physical life is based on the same molecular mechanisms. What am I calling a molecular mechanism? I'm calling it a language. There's a mechanism inside a molecule, inside a cell. They communicate inside themselves. They speak. The fact that it is the same and the same genetic code for all physical life, the cease to existers, they call that common descent. The first life form came into being by chance, they say, and that all other life descends from that primal organism. And so we have one organism. Everything is the same after it. So that's an example of common descent. Descent, whereas the Bible says something far more rational. It says the one God speaks one language. And that's why everything's the same. A single molecular basis of life, a single one genetic code, a single system that expresses the language of life. And commonality, by the way, is true. Everything is the same. It's a fact. Darwin atheism, Darwinian atheism doesn't explain it. And that's going to be obvious. Pretty soon, I hope to you. Why are we doing this, by the way? Why are we going to do this? What's going on in my little brain that makes me do this to you? I'm proving to you something. What am I proving? You have a immortal, supernatural component. Your mind is a supernatural Device. It is not a physical device. You are immortal. You have a soul spirit. Your soul spirit will exist no matter what happens to your physical body. So I have to prove to you that when your physical body dies, that your soul spirit is unaffected by that physical death. That's what I'm doing. Why am I doing that to you? So that you will do what? You'll do it to your friends who won't be your friends much longer. Because once you prove to them that they have a supernatural component that could not possibly evolve, because how do you evolve a supernatural component? And you prove to them that that component comes from God and it is immortal because it is made of godly material, then you bring into what? Into the relationship you now have with your used-to-be friend. Accountability, judgment, obedience, witness. Are they going to like you for that? No. 
they'll stop being your friend. Okay, they might still like you, but they will never speak to you or invite you over or do anything with you. Why? Why? Why won't they? Because you'll do what? You'll keep talking to them about that. When will they seek you out? When they're dying. That's right. Very good. Then you'll be friends again. Then you'll be a true friend. I should point out here that many theologians disagree with me. Sorry for them. They propose that God uses evolution, or he used evolution as his method of creation. Very common. It's called theistic evolutionary thinking. In effect, that God established the laws of nature, and as such, these laws cannot be transgressed. Everything thereafter is a natural occurring process. So God, like a watchmaker, wound it up, put it in place, and stood back and doesn't interfere with it, and it runs its course. And when man sins, it may increase the entropy rate, But God allows that sin to occur because it's part of his natural law system. So God establishes the law and he won't transgress them. And so by that by that line of reasoning, there's no such thing as a what? There's no such thing as a miracle because God will never transgress. He will never interfere with his natural system. And so they'll declare there are no supernatural events. There's no miracles there. They'll declare that with great confidence. The uh, theistic evolutionists. It's just an event, they'll say. Any miracle is just an event that conforms to a natural established law, but we just can't explain it yet. But if we could understand the laws better, we'd be able to explain that better, because nothing can occur that would overthrow these natural processes. God will not, they say, God will not interfere with his system that he put in place. And that, by the way, puts them in very, very good accord with the Darwinian atheists. Because both agree that everything that happens in the material realm must conform to natural laws. And so, once again, theistic evolution agrees with atheistic evolution. And I would what? I would expect that. I'm not surprised by that. One says God doesn't exist. The other says God is subject to his own system. What did you just do? Yeah, you made the system more powerful than God, didn't you? Boiled down, it's this way. God didn't do anything, and God can't do anything anymore. That's what the two are saying. One said that God didn't do anything. The theistic side of it says God can't do anything anymore. He won't go against his own precepts, is what they say, and uh, he will not do anything supernatural. And I hope you recognize that as irrational nonsense. What it decays into is monism, as you, I hope, can figure out. But I submit that God is omnipotent. God has free will. You have free will. Where did your free will come from? Came from a free will being. He has free will. And he also has what? Ability. He can choose and he's able to do what he wants. Now, I'm going to borrow from Professor Edgar Andrews again. He illustrates this uniquely. And I would recommend, by the way, if you have a chance to go get his writings. They are very, very good and quite helpful to you. Uh, he will explain these, these kinds of concepts in a very, very complex way that you won't understand. But he'll do it very in a way that's quite funny. Here's what he says. The theistic evolutionist has God painting himself into a corner. What does he mean by that? That God has established a system that he won't interfere with, so the system's got to run its course, and God has painted himself now into a corner. 
Whereas the Darwinian atheist says there is no one in the corner to begin with, the floor paints itself. Those are your two options. Okay. Enough of that for today. Let's go back to our subject. Can you flip that time around for me, TJ? Oh, sorry, Terry. Can you flip the time around for me? The monitor? Oh, is it gone? And how much time do I have? Oh, wow. I did entropy and language and molecular cell in 20 minutes. That's pretty darn strong, even for me. I did intend to blast through it. How come? See, when a cell is talking, it's got to reproduce itself because it's mind-numbing, drool-infecting stuff. When a cell's got to communicate to itself, what has it got to do? It's got to tell itself, I've got to make a copy. Where does it make a copy? Where does it get the material? How does it find it? Who tells it to reproduce? How does it know how to reproduce? Who is it communicating with? What kind of cell does it make? How does it know what kind of cell to make? How does it do all that? How does it do it? What is scientific study proven that it's communicating with a language? They can read the language. They know what the language is. They know how the cell tells itself to make another cell and which cell to make and what it says. And how it gets the little factory workers. It's got little factory workers in there. And they sit around and wait. We call them unions. I'm kidding. They sit around and wait. And they're not doing anything. And listen, I was, you know, before you misjudge me, I was the uh, head of the electricians in the IBW, the railroad. So I understand unions really well. And I'm not against unions by any means. I see great value in them. I also see great value in some kind of system that referees between management and labor. I'm not sure we've accomplished that in this country. That's another thing. Anyway, somebody's got to tell those workers to make a cell and what material to use and what kind of cell to make. And that cell does that inside itself with a language. Language of God. It doesn't do it by chance and happenstance. It's impossible, by the way. It would make the wrong cell every time. And it can't make the wrong cell every time. How much do you know about DNA? Double helix. And the little things that go in between. Well, you're soon going to be just absolutely sick of it. Okay, John 3.18. Here we go. Start the sermon. Is he kidding? No. Thirteen, I'm sorry, thirteen, eighteen. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. That's a very important word. Who's he talking about now? Who's he going to talk about? I do not speak concerning all of you. He's talking to his apostles. And so there's one of them or some of them that he's not he's not going to speak concerning. So who's he talking about? He's talking about Judas. We're going to get into Judas here. And here we are. There's John 13 on the board and ready to go. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. How many did he choose? He chose them all. He's got 12 of them there. He knew who he chose. What's he saying? He knows. 
He knows everything there is to know about each and every one of them. So he's letting them say, he's letting them understand later that I know and I always knew and I'm still going to always know I'm God himself and I know who Judas is in his entirety. I know how he was born. I know how he's lived. I know when I chose him and I know everything about him. Judas never was able to betray Christ. Does that make sense? Because to betray Christ would require that Christ what? Not know something. You can't betray an omniscient God. He is outside of time. He created time. He's put us in it. He's outside of it. He surveys it simultaneously. How do you betray him? How do you fool him? That's why when you do the study of the word, the word actually means deliver. Doesn't mean betray, it means deliver. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled was the obvious question. Which scripture? I want to make the case is Genesis 3.15. He, he gives you one, though. He gives you Psalm 41. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. He's specifically going to now fulfill that scripture. He's going to fulfill the bread heel scripture right now. Now, I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. Your Bible may say I am he, but the he isn't in the text. It's in italics. You may believe that I am. You have to believe that he's the I am. You have to believe that he's the one that made the created order, that spoke it with language into existence, and that he made time. He's outside of time. If you don't believe that he's the I am, then what's your problem? You're unsaved. You're going to perish. John 8:24. Big Jack was talking to me about the Mormons that he was inviting today. Right now, the Mormons, if they were brought by Jack, would do what? They get up and leave right now because they do not believe that he is the creator of the created order. They believe that he is a creation. They do about Christ. They believe that we have God and we have Christ, and they are not the same, and Christ is very much saying to you that you may believe that I am. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. What is that? Receives, sends, sends, receives. What is that? Pay attention to that, because that's really cool. When Christ had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will deliver me. We've gone over why he is troubled by this. God is troubled by what he's about to do. He's about to do something, which is to give a piece of bread. He gives the first piece of bread at the table, the first piece of bread out of the banquet. In this case, it's a Passover. Makes it even more extraordinary. He gives the first piece of bread out of the Passover to the guest of honor, to the one sitting in the place of honor, to the one whom he loves, to the one he is honoring and expressing his great love for and his great friendship to and with. So the person of the, uh, sitting at the table at the place of honor is going to get the first piece of bread. And that's who? Judas. And he's troubled because does he love Judas? Yes. Does he know who Judas is? Yes. Does he know that Satan is in the room? Yes. 
Does he know that Satan is going to enter into Judas as soon as he gives him the piece of bread? Yes. Does he know why Satan is going to enter into Judas as soon as Judas gets the piece of bread? Yes. Does Judas know that as soon as Judas gets the piece of bread, that Satan and he are going to unify? Does Judas know that? Yes. Does Christ know that Judas knows that? Yes. Does Judas know that Christ knows that Judas knows? Yes. And they look back at all of this, and then they say, okay, that's God sitting there. They didn't know that. They didn't know that, but now they know. And they look back, John especially. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. And there was, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, John, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. So John, then leaning back on Jesus' breast... He said to him, Lord, who is it? We talked about that for the visitor. I will say this. Peter's going to do what here? He's going to kill this guy. You, John, find out who the deliverer is and let me know. Give me the high sign. <coughs> End of that. That's what Peter's plan is. That's why that happened. And John, I think, looks back at it and goes, I am so stupid. I am the dumbest apostle of all the apostles. I know he did. I can read what he wrote. I didn't know who Judas was. I had worked with him. I was next to him. I didn't see it. I didn't know how wicked this person was. I didn't read the Bible. I didn't read the scripture. I had no idea who he was or who he is. Because John understands that the mind does not die upon physical death. So it's immortal. Jesus answers. It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. So here comes this first piece of bread, this great symbol of love and friendship and honor. Having Jesus answered, it is he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the piece of bread, the first piece of bread, he gave it to the person sitting in the place of honor, because that's decided before it even begins, before the meal begins. We won't have a Passover meal. I've done that in the past. Uh, Even though I've done it in the past, I haven't replicated this exact thing. Uh, But I wish I had now, looking back on it. I would have put somebody in the place of honor, of love and friendship, and dipped the bread and handed it to them so that you would know. When did Judas sit in the place of honor? He walked in and sat in it. Everybody knew that Judas was going to be in the place of honor. We've discussed why that is and by the tapes. <coughs> they're very expensive. We need the money. Okay, they're mostly free. We still need the money. People listen to us on the Internet now. That's not for you. It's for the people on the Internet that are, well, what do we call them? They get all everything for free and they don't have to come here. They don't bring any food. So what do we want them to do? To kind of carry their burden. There's hundreds of them. Did you know that? Hundreds of them. Hundreds and hundreds of them listening to me right now, or will. And what do I want them to do? I want pizza. That's absolutely right. I mean, they got phones. They can they can order us up a pizza. Wouldn't it be funny if we got three, four hundred pizzas? Now that would be funny. Would I be happy about that? Oh yeah. Would you be happy about that? 
Well, maybe after six or seven months of it, we'd tire and then we'd change it. (coughs) Anyway, we have the best buffet in town, though. We already have that. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. That's critical that you understand that. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Wow, that's so profound right there. But no one at the table who wrote this, John, no one at the table. Did John know? John didn't know. Is John going, gosh, I should have known. I should have known what do quickly meant. I should have known what the piece of bread symbol signal meant. I should have known. I saw it. I didn't even know. I didn't know that Satan entered him. I should have known that. It was obvious. Everything is obvious. I'm John. I'm right next to him. He tells me. I still don't get it. How stupid am I? I know that's what he did. It's all over his Gospels. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, who's my guest, thought this. John. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, and Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast. There is no possibility Jesus would ever say to Judas to buy those things. So that is absolute ignorance. And there's John admitting that he had no idea what was going on. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately. Oh, he wanted that piece of bread. And he was also told to leave. Go now. Okay? Now, really fast, Matthew 26, 23, 25. I know this is repetition for a lot of you, but um, as you know, it is the only system here that works. Because if I don't do it, I leave so many people behind that they just get frustrated and they struggle. Okay, here we are, 26, 23. He answered and said, well, I'll go back 22. They were exceedingly sorrowful, all the apostles sorrowful, because he just said, we got one guy in here that's going to deliver me to the Pharisees. And each one of them began to say, Lord, is it I? Every single one of them asked, Lord, is it I? Except who? One of them didn't ask. One of them Zena. Judas. Everybody talks. Judas is in the seat of honor. He says nothing. Jesus answers, verse 23. He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will deliver me. Your Bible will say betray. Just realize about the omniscience of God. Have no position that Christ is not omniscient. I know many will have that position, and they will come and argue with me once, and then they'll never come back and argue with me again. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, delivered. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was delivering him, betraying him, whatever, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? Christ said to him, you have said it. Judas, and it says Judas answers that. Did you you catch that? Let me say that again. Judas answered. Christ said it would be better for that man who going to deliver me to the Pharisees to have never existed. Existed. That takes you back to what? Genesis. Speaking things into existence out of nothing. It had been better if he had never existed. And Judas answered him. What do you mean answered? He didn't ask a question. God answered, asked a question there. 
No, he made a statement. It'd be better if you'd never existed. And Judas answers. What's that mean? It means that it is a is a statement and an answer, or it is a call and a response. Judas responds. So Judas is responding to his statement that that one of you, it would have been better if one of you had never existed. And Judas responds to that with, Teacher, Rabbi, am I that one? Did Judas know? Oh, yeah. Did God know? Oh, yeah. Did anybody else at the table know? Judas waits until he's got what before he responds. And Christ says, you know. Judas responds to this terrifying statement about never existing with this cryptic, Rabbi, is it I? And Christ answers in return, you essentially, you know it is you. So obvious question, why did Judas wait? Why did Judas not ask this until all the others had asked? Then Judas waits until he gets the piece of bread. By the way, Judas goes where in the order? He goes last. He's twelfth. Where else is he twelfth in the Bible? Judas is always last. Except at the table, except at the banquet table. Then he's what? He's first. He's the most honored. He's the most loved. He's the one with the greatest friendship. That's what sitting at that spot says. That's what getting the first piece of bread says. But everywhere else, he's last. Where's he last? List of apostles, Mark 3, 13 through 19, Luke 6, 12 through 16. All the apostles are mentioned. Who's last? Judas, last. Judas Iscariot, who was the first to receive the bread, is last in the list of the apostles. He's also something else. Iscariot means what? Tells you where he's from. Carry on. He's not what? All the apostles are something except Judas. What are all the apostles? Where are they from? Galilee. They're all Galileans. They speak Galilean, which is, by the way, a pidgin English. So would you have them in Acts 2 speaking to the, we have in Acts 2, we have all these people who have come to Jerusalem because it's a pilgrimage festival. What festival is it in Acts 2 that they come to? It's Shavuot. What's that mean? That means weeks. It's the festival of weeks. How many festivals do I have? How many feast days of the Lord do I have? I have seven. Which one is Shavuot? It's the fourth. Every Jew knows this and they come from all over the place, all over that area of the world, and they all come into Jerusalem and none of them speak what? None of them he speak Hebrew, and none of them speak Galilean Hebrew, and they're all what? Jews. And the apostles stand up in front of them and speak this Galilean pigeon Jewish Hebrew, and everyone what? Hears it in their own language. Okay? Very important to understand that. These are Galileans, but not Judas. Judas is not a Galilean, and he's listed last. Judas is listed last. He was outside. He was different from the others. He was first when he got the bread, but he's always listed last. So the first is last. He's outside. He's different from the others. Do I expect that with Judas? Oh, yeah, he's different. I have the Goliath typology there, don't I? What's Goliath? He's the type of Judas. And he's different. 
Last Sunday, I brought up, pointed out that Satan and Judas also wait until Christ hands Judas the first piece of bread, the bread of the love, friendship and honor before they combine. So Judas does two things. He waits until that first bread is given before he says, is it I? And he's responding to Christ saying, it's here's what Christ did. He literally lit him up, you know, spotlights, kind of what we do to the visitors here. Christ literally hit him with a spotlight, handed him the first piece of bread, said, that's him, and no one knew. And Judas goes, is it up? Waits till he's got the first piece of bread. Now, he also, Satan waits. Judas doesn't say anything. He waits until he's got the first piece of bread. And then Satan waits until that first piece of bread. So I got wait, wait there, don't I? So now we know that we can link together the rabbi is it I with the unification, with the combining, with the entering of Judas by Satan. Now, was there a physical reaction? When Satan goes inside of Judas, was there a physical reaction? Could you see that? What happened to Judas? Just sit there, eat the bread? Nice bread. Was there a change in Judas? Satan enters into him. You've seen the movies. Does he twitch? Something happened. Did something happen when Satan go in? Because what does John know when Judas got entered? John knows. So what's the obvious question? Did Christ have time after this to sit around and say, well, by the way, while we were sitting there at the table, when I handed the bread to Judas, which is bread of honor, bread of friendship, bread of grace, he's in a position of honor. When I handed him that, Satan entered him right there. How did John know that Satan enters into Judas right after that piece of bread? How did he know that? Looking back, how did John know when exactly this happened? Logically now. The rabbi, is it I, occurs after or during Judas's eating of the first piece of bread. So we have to make a list. Uh, I should go back. Make a list. Check the time. Still doing good. The chicken and rice is not cold yet. Go ahead and avoid that chicken and rice. Don't bother with it. Leave that for, say, me. Don't have to worry about getting any of that. Remember again, don't leave before you fill out your bracket. How come? Is it is there is there do we get some is there an entrance fee on that? No. Why do I want you all to participate? So that when I beat all of you, I feel good about myself. Have I won this lately? No. So I'm getting desperate. Okay. A. Is it I? What I want you to do, O detectives, who are coming to a crime scene after it happened, Judas asks, is it I? I want you to give me the chronology of it. I'm going to put this one in here. Do quickly. Do quickly. Okay? Satan enters. Piece of bread is eaten. And let me put first piece of bread. Very important. Not just any bread. It wasn't like everybody else had bread. Nobody else had anything. Judas got the first piece of bread. On Passover, on first fruits. It's not really Passover, it's first fruits. On first fruits. Who's going to get 
the first steak comes off the grill. That's very important. Some churches give away parking spaces if you're the largest tither. We won't. We'll give you a piece of steak. Kidding about that tithing part. I just do that for the people who are listening to this. Okay, what does it say? Is it I do quickly? Satan entered. Piece of bread. Money box. He took. Judas takes the money box. That makes no sense. Won't get to it today. If you have said it. Or you know. There's that said, that language. Very important. Okay. Which one happened first? We know that Satan didn't enter until he ate the first piece of bread. Okay? We know the do quickly didn't happen until after uh, Satan entered him. So we know that it goes piece of bread, Satan entered, do quickly. Okay, where's the money box? That's the last thing he took. You have said it. Comes after, is it I? So that's our order, right? This is first. Is it I? Okay? Now... What comes next? Piece of bread Satan entered, or you have said it? Okay, you don't like that one? Piece of bread is first. Then what? Is it I is second? So you've got him eating the first of bread, or are they simultaneous? But you have to have your order right. Then what comes next? Okay, did Satan come in before it is I? Oh, okay, let's go with Satan second, and it is I third. Ooh, I really like that. Because who's answering that question? Both of them. Okay, then what happens next? You have said it, we'll agree with that, right? And you, now this is where your Greek study is a lot of fun. Is that plural or singular? And by the way, if it's singular, what's that mean? So that'll be fun for you to do in your spare time. Then comes what? Do quickly. Do what quickly? Do quickly. What does you want him to do? And who does he want to do it? And the last thing they do, Satan and Judas, is they go out the door into the darkness of night. They grab the money box. Is there any money in it? Do they want the money? Why do they get the money box? That makes no sense. Okay, got to hurry now. That's your order. 26 of Matthew, John 13. Why did they wait? What's the significance of all of this? And have you figured it out? I hope you have. (coughs) If you haven't, here we go. Judas and Satan wait until they have the bread before something. They want that bread. They're expecting something. What do they expect Christ to do? They just heard him say what? I'm going to give the bread to the guy that is whom I've always known, because I know all things. I'm going to give the bread to the guy that I know that Satan is going to enter. Now, his apostles didn't know that, but he says, that's what I'm going to do. And they wait for the bread. And then, bam, the entering. So, they expected Christ to give them the bread and do what? As soon as they got the bread, Satan comes in. Why? Did they think everybody at the table wouldn't get it? Like I said, Christ pretty much lit him up. Almost the only thing he could have done is just dump bread on him, right? 
soaked every piece of bread he could and just stood back and threw them all at him. But nobody knew it. Nobody got it. How come? Did Satan and Judas think no one was going to get it? They had to think they would get it. So they combined. They expect Christ to say that. Because what could Christ do? He could do the same thing Elisha could do, couldn't he? Elisha is a type of Christ. Elisha told his servant, showed his servant what? The supernatural realm. All Christ had to do, he's God. Boom. Everybody sees somebody. Who do they see? They see Satan. Satan enters into Judas. The supernatural melds with the natural. The spirit and the physical, bang, come together. Judas and Satan, they expected Christ to reveal himself, by the way, Christ to reveal who he is. And they expect they expected Christ, I believe, to expose or accuse them. And they then expected that they would have to reveal their power and they would lie. And what lie exactly would they, would they say? What had they planned? What deception did they have? And by the way, this gets into I have lost none, John 18, 8 through 9 and 17, 12. Christ says, I've lost none except the Antichrist, the son of perdition, he says, 17, 12 and 18, 9. Of John, I have lost none except the Antichrist, son of perdition, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. They expected an escalation here, and he lost none of his disciples. Who was trying, who was going to take them from him? Who was he going to lose them to? It's no surprise that he lost none. That's eternal security. But he says it. So who's trying to get them? Instead, by the way, Judas and Satan don't get an escalation. They get a command to leave. Do quickly is the same as Matthew 4 where it says, depart now. Go. Do quickly. Do what you're going to do now. Go. He makes them depart. He kicks them out. And so they do it. But before they go, they take the money box. What is that? Obviously, Christ knows what their plan is, and they know what that he knows. So why are they going to do their plan? Why would they keep going in their plan? It's because it's to their advantage to go according to plan. What is their plan? When's the next time we see Satan and Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane? And Judas knew that Christ would be in the Garden of Gethsemane. What's the obvious question? How did he know? Well, he'd been there before. Satan would obviously know where the Garden of Gethsemane is, too. Now, remember Zechariah 11. Zechariah 11, 4 through 5. Israel is this flock of slaughter. The good shepherd and the evil shepherd are together, and the flock of Israel is a flock that's going to slaughter. And Christ, that's Zechariah 11, 4 through 5. Zechariah 11, 15 and 16. He says this, God says this, I will raise up the Antichrist who will tear Israel to pieces. So God says. And Satan and Judas have proved they knew Zechariah 11 inside and out because they went after the 30 pieces of silver. They throw the 30 pieces of silver, uh, the wages of the good shepherd into the temple. They throw it at the potter just like they're supposed to, just like Zechariah 11 says. They know that silver equals atonement and price. They know that silver equals blood. They know they're throwing salvation blood back at God. Because he's the potter, right? Second Samuel 24, 1 Chronicles 21, Exodus 30, 11 through 16. The ransom money. That's not for you here. That's for the people on the Internet. 
Always connect Exodus 30, 11 through 16 to Zechariah 11, 13 and Matthew 27, 3 through 10. If you've got Judas throwing the money and you don't know what the money means, you don't know that it's the atonement money, you don't know it has something to do with David's census back in 2 Samuel 24, then you will never figure out what's going on here. Anyway, Judas and Satan must believe that what's going on right now is the raising up of the Antichrist. This is the time to do what? To slaughter Israel. But do quickly. Do what you must do. They have to interpret. Means get ready to slaughter the Jews. Get ready to start the conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And obviously, Satan and Judas would also have expected what to come next after that. That's right. Zechariah 12, Zechariah 13, Zechariah 14. They thought they would all come in order. That's chronological. Zechariah 13, 7 says the good shepherd will be struck. Christ even quotes that. Christ even quotes Zechariah 13 just prior to going to Gethsemane. And Zechariah 12 is tribulational. It's about the second coming. Zechariah 13 is tribulational. It's about the second coming. Zechariah 13.7 is both first and second coming. Satan, Judas, could not have known that there would be a great parenthesis between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. This is what they thought would happen. I submit it. They saw it this way. They saw the Messiah would come and he would feed the nation of Israel. And so Christ came and he fed the nation of Israel, both physically and spiritually. And Israel would reject them and he would feed them. He would fatten them up. And then they would be slaughtered. Who would slaughter them? The son of perdition would. Satan and the Antichrist would slaughter them. And so they expected that to come next. They did not expect that there would be 2,000 years in between the fattening and the striking of the Messiah and the feeding and then the return. So they would see the Messiah come and feed, testify who he is, do the signs, do the teaching, feeding the nation of Israel, even though the nation of Israel would reject him and become slaughtered by the Romans and the Antichrist. So that's what Satan and Judas were expecting. They, they expected the good shepherd would be rejected. That's Zechariah 11. They expected the good shepherd would then step aside. He'd be struck down and the Antichrist, the foolish shepherd, the wicked shepherd would be followed by Israel instead. The good shepherd would throw back the wages, the blood atonement to the potter and his poor of the flock scattered. The poor of the flock being his believers, his remnant, his disciples. And then would be the raising of the Antichrist, and he would be allowed to rule the world, and he would kill two-thirds of all the Jews. Then the Messiah will return, resurrected, and Armageddon would occur, and Israel would then return to God. Okay? That's what they expected. That's what the do quickly means. Prepare to be the Antichrist. That's what Christ is saying to them. He's saying to Judas, prepare to be the Antichrist. Prepare to be the son of perdition. And that's why, by the way, it's so cool when he's at Gethsemane and Satan and Judas show up again. Christ says something really neat to them. What's he say? He says, friend, why you come here? Because there ain't going to be no escalation. You're wasting your time. You're right, Zechariah 11, 12, 13, and 14 are chronological, but there's a 2,000-year parenthesis. He contradicts their interpretation of do quickly. They thought do quickly meant the Antichrist would be allowed to kill two-thirds of the Jews real soon. 
No. Do quickly meant, turn me over to the Pharisees. We're getting ready for the strike down. Not the raising up of the Antichrist. So by saying, friend, why have you come to both Judas and Satan? He's really saying, you're not being raised up yet. It's not time yet. Sorry. He's not really sorry. That's a fake sorry. You have come. Why have you come means you don't know the plan. You are inside of time. You are subjected to the created order. You are a created being. And I am. That's what he's saying to them there. So why is Judas called a thief? And why did he grab the money box on the way out the door? Next week, we'll get to that. Okay. Right.